You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Today, the question that we have burning in our hearts and minds is, where did the Pentateuch come from? And we're talking with Jeff Stackard, who teaches at the University of Chicago. But before we jump in, we should probably ask the question, what is the Pentateuch? Well, it's a very fancy word that a lot of smart people came up with to sound even smarter and make a lot of us feel dumber. But when we say Pentateuch, all we really mean is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Where did the Pentateuch come from? Why is this an interesting question, Pete? Where did the Pentateuch come from? Well, I, I think just, you know, to, to follow up briefly, it, you know, in, in Judaism, it's called Torah, which means law. And so, the, we're referring to the same thing. And, you know, Pentateuch is that fancy word that has Greek roots and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it, it is a topic that has people just have been talking about this for centuries and centuries. This is not something new because traditionally, Moses is responsible for the Pentateuch. Now, where that idea came from, frankly, that's not clear at all. Like, so the Bible, act. the Bible doesn't start out by saying Moses wrote these first five books. Not at all. But no. we just, we just have somehow that's become the tradition that we all just have. I mean, at but least like the law of Moses. That doesn't mean Moses wrote it. Just like the Gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't mean Jesus wrote the Gospels, right? Yeah. So, but it's, you know, Moses is clearly the main figure in this Pentateuch or Torah. But it, the thing is, you know, when tradition sort of has Moses as being basically the author, what happens is you begin reading the Pentateuch clearly and you come away with like, there's no way. <laughs> you know, there's no way Moses wrote this the way we see it here. And, you know, part because it's written in the third person. It's written about Moses. Moses doesn't do any I writing. It's it's written by somebody else and who knows who. And, you know, the, these have been things that have been talked about by really smart people for a very long time. I'm thinking of somebody like Jerome, who lived around the year 400. He's translating the Bible into Latin, and he gets to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which talks about Moses' death. And he says, you know, I'm pretty sure he didn't write this. I think Ezra may have. If you know Ezra, he lived after the exile. So, I mean, that's a very old idea. And medieval Judaism, there were, there were voices in medieval Judaism that also looked at some of this stuff and said, there's no way Moses could have written some of this stuff. In modern biblical scholarship, what happened was a more systematic approach to actually looking at the Pentateuch line by line and trying to listen to what's happening in this text and to try to come up with different kinds of theories about where the Pentateuch came from. And it gets really, really complicated. And it's unfortunate because I think it's just so interesting, which is why we have Jeff Stackard on. But the reigning theory is one that some of uh, our listeners probably have heard of and some might be very familiar with, you know, even in like college courses on the Bible. It's called the documentary hypothesis. Jeff is going to talk about that. But it's, it's a hypothesis that the Pentateuch, as we know it, originally was four separate sources, written sources, that were edited together sometime after the exile, which means, you know, after they came back in 539 BC from Babylon. And, uh, and those sources, because, uh, you know, some of these things are going to fly, I think, pretty quickly, and I want to make sure that, you know, we're all sort of on board. But these four sources are called J, E, D, and P, 
their little initials just to help us understand what is characteristic of some of these sources. And the J source is so-called because in these portions of the Pentateuch, the divine name Yahweh tends to be used. And Yahweh starts with a Y, but in German it starts with a J, so they call that J. And E is Elohim, that's another word for God. And, uh, you know, there are parts of the Pentateuch that really strongly prefer the name Elohim rather than Yahweh. And then D is the Deuteronomist, which is basically the book of Deuteronomy. And then P is what's called the priestly writer. And you can see a lot of the priestly writers work in, say, the book of Leviticus. And, you know, traditionally, the way this has been understood is that with the J and E stories, a lot of those are like the narratives we're familiar with in Genesis and like Exodus. And then in D, things get a little bit more bureaucratic, so to speak, because now you have to sacrifice only in Jerusalem. And then Leviticus, things get really very much complicated and very regimented, you might say, in terms of the nature of the sacrifices and what to sacrifice, you know, when and, and, and for what reason. And it seems like there are different tones and moods in different portions of the Pentateuch. Even that explanation is just skimming the surface, and there's so much going on here. But it's a topic that is concerning to a lot of people, because when you've been taught that Moses wrote the Pentateuch because God inspired him to, and then you realize that it's much more complicated than that, you've got some thinking to do about what is the Bible and what do we do with it. And, and the Pentateuch is sort of like Exhibit A, in the modern period that we live in for how the origins of the Bible are actually very complicated. They're not simple. All right. Well, let's have this conversation with Jeff. All right. One of the ways that I sometimes describe this is it's a little bit like my son, and he gets these Lego sets. He puts them together just right, and then when he's done, he puts them over on the shelf and doesn't really interact with them very much. He likes them perfectly over there, and that's the priestly God. The priestly God made the world, made it just the way that he liked it, and wanted to live really far away from it and enjoy it from a distance. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Welcome to our podcast, folks, and welcome to our guest, Jeff Stackert. And our topic is... Where did the Pentateuch come from? Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Excellent. So, we're going to just go ahead and get started the way we often do with our very intelligent biblical scholar guests and just give us a little 
bit of your background and how you became interested in studying the Bible at, at such a level. Sure. I grew up in a religious family. My parents were adult converts to evangelicalism. So, I was exposed to the Bible from a very young age. I was always interested in ancient things, and the Bible was one of those. I had a lot of questions that along the way I had a hard time getting answers to. It wasn't until I went to college that I was exposed to a critical approach to reading the Bible. And then all of these questions that I had had for a long time that I couldn't get really satisfactory answers to, I was finding answers. And so, the more I studied, the more interested I got. I think if I hadn't been exposed to a critical approach to the Bible, I probably would have turned away from it because it was frustrating. But then with these scholarly approaches, all of a sudden I could find historical and literary answers to the questions that I had. Well, that's very interesting, Jeff. I mean, critical scholarship sort of helped save the Bible for you. Yeah, yeah, it's true. What what was the issue? I mean, was there any particular issue at some point in your college years that was sort of like your either aha moment or uh-oh moment, depending on what perspective you take? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I never really had the uh-oh moment. I mean, you oftentimes hear about people who have like a religious background like I do having some kind of crisis of faith, but that wasn't my experience. Instead, it was really the case that learning about historically contextualizing this material thinking about ways in which it had a history of its own, helped to explain problems that I had seen in the text. I also had good teachers who were willing to help me along the way. And so, they weren't necessarily looking to denigrate my faith, but they were also really clear-eyed about what the historical and literary realities were in the text. So, it wasn't one thing. It was the fact that when I started seeing that the text had a history and we could explain all kinds of features within it, it just became much more interesting and a lot less frustrating. Yeah. So, I mean, what what were some of those things, or maybe one or two things, either specifically or generally about placing the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, in, in that historical context? Yeah, so for, you know, Pentateuchal studies, a big problem that a lot of people know right off the bat is the fact that when you start reading Genesis, you have one account of the creation of the world, and then you get a second account of the creation of the world. And different interpreters have approached that problem in different ways historically. Um, Some have posited that this wasn't one creation of the world, that there were actually two creation events. So, Jeff, you're talking about Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, the Adam and Eve story in Genesis 2 and 3, and then the the six days of creation in Genesis 1, right? Exactly, yeah. And so, there's a whole bunch of discrepancies between those two stories. But for me, one that was particularly egregious or, or one that I really noticed was that in the first creation story in Genesis 1, you have the creation of animals And then you have the creation of man and woman together on day six. Whereas in Genesis 2, you have first the creation of the man, and then the creation of the animals, and then the creation of the woman after the animals. And so, if this is one event, if there's one creation of the world, it either happened one way or the other way, but it couldn't happen both ways. So, the order or the sequence of those those creation elements was a really problematic issue for me. And finding out that they were really two different stories that didn't have to be 
correlated with each other and all their details was eye-opening. <laughs> As it has been for many people looking, because you can't really reconcile those two stories and make them into one. No, exactly. And so, another example, though, from Genesis 1 that a lot of people look at is the creation of light on day one, but the sun on day four. And so, how is it that you get light without the sun? And that one, too, I think, you know, there's a great answer for that, and that is that the author in Genesis 1 didn't think that the sun was the source of light. And so, there are explanations for these things, but it requires somebody to look at the text from a historical perspective that doesn't necessarily assume all of what we understand from a modern scientific perspective. So, these kind of things, you know, were sort of problems that I had observed. So, when you say look at the text from a historical perspective, you mean from the point of view of ancient authors and an ancient audience? Exactly, yeah. What was available to them? How did they think through this material? And so, I think Genesis 1 is a great example of this, where they simply didn't know all of what we know about cosmology, but they had a really well-worked-out set of ideas, and that's what's expressed there. And so, is it you know, based on observation, is it empirical in that sense? I think the answer is yes, but in a quite different way than our empirical sort of scientific conclusions. So, when we have these examples of two creation accounts, where we start to get into the text and see almost different pieces, you know, in, in my background, would have been taught to see the Bible as one book. Sure. Um, but now we have, you know, obviously 66 books in the Bible we have as Protestants. And then within that, there's different accounts and there's different snippets. You know, we have two creation accounts. How does that point to, you know, going back to the question we have for today, where did the Pentateuch come from? What are the insights we might gain from recognizing that there are two creation accounts in terms of that question of where the Pentateuch came from? Sure. Um, I think the first thing to recognize in relation to these observations in Genesis 1 and 2 is that the conclusion that we have different stories and then this can be replicated over and over again through similar kinds of internal contradictions throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, the fact that we then have these different accounts that can be separated from each other, and it turns out that they connect up with each other. And so, different accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 are reflected then in the different accounts of the flood in Genesis 6 through 9, for example. These are a couple of examples of texts that correlate closely with each other. It turns out that one of the sources, the source in Genesis 1, the P source, the priestly source, connects up to the priestly account of the flood. And so, there are kind of internal cross-references, for example. The same with the second creation account in Genesis 2, the J account or the Yahwistic account, uh, connects up with the Yahwistic account in the flood. And there's internal cross-references between those as well. It turns out that this works throughout the entirety of the Pentateuch, and it really tells us a few different things. One, it tells us that we're not really dealing with a Pentateuch, something, you know, five books, that's what Pentateuch means. They aren't five separate compositions, but instead, it's really what in the Jewish tradition is called the five-fifths of the one Torah, that they are different parts that have been put together to create one continuously running story from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. But it's been divided up into five parts, the five scrolls of the Pentateuch, for technological reasons. 
the scrolls were too long. And so you, you, you couldn't get all of the material of the Torah onto a single scroll, it seems. And so they decided to cut it up. And so there's a Jewish tradition that this is the five-fifths of the one Torah, uh, in Hebrew, Chamisha Chumshe Torah. So what we learn is that we really don't have a Pentateuch at all. I guess that's a first thing. But it's also the case that what we have when we get to what I subscribe to, a documentary hypothesis, the idea that there are these four originally independent literary compositions that have been woven together into what we now have as the Torah or the Pentateuch, we have a literary solution to a literary problem. And the literary problem is that the text as we have received it is unreadable. It's incoherent. But when we pull it apart into its original compositions, those are internally cohesive, they have a coherent plot line, and they don't have any of those internal contradictions that we see so regularly in the compiled Torah. Jeff, you, you mentioned before P-source and J-source, and now you mentioned the documentary hypothesis, and that's a, that's a pretty standard theory of where the Pentateuch came from, but it might need some explaining. So, you know, just walk us through what these four sources, originally independent documents, were about, maybe even like when they might have been written and and why they were put together. Yeah. I oftentimes say in response to this set of questions, which are really common questions, these questions are, are posed to me pretty regularly, that I don't know who combined the material. I don't even know exactly when they combined the material or why they combined this material, but I do know how. And what I consistently find is that people want to know who and when and why, and they're a lot less interested in the how. And so I have to admit right from the start in response to this question that uh, I can really tell you much more about the how than the other questions. With that said, the different sources that we have, we can read now separate from each other when we divide them up, and they do express certain religious ideas, and so we can describe those. And so I've done a lot of work on the priestly source. I've done a lot of work on the Deuteronomic source, which is in the book of Deuteronomy or the scroll of Deuteronomy, but it's not the same as the scroll of Deuteronomy, but it's all contained within Deuteronomy and so gets called the Deuteronomic source because that's where it's located. I've done some work on what's called the Eloistic source or the E-source. That's the most controversial of these. A lot of scholars don't believe that an E-source ever existed. I think it did, um, and I think that we can read it profitably. But the priestly source, it's a story about the history of the world that begins in Genesis 1 with the creation account. And it tells the story of a God who created the world and really liked it, but wanted to live very far away from it. One of the ways that I sometimes describe this is it's a little bit like my son who's 11 and he really likes Legos, and he gets these Lego sets and he puts them together just right. You know, they have hundreds, sometimes thousands of pieces, gets them all put together. And then when he's done, he puts them over on the shelf and he looks at them and doesn't really interact with them very much. He likes them perfectly over there. And that's the priestly God. The priestly God made the world, made it just the way that he liked it, and wanted to live really far away from it. 
and enjoy it from a distance. And the difference between the priestly god's world and my son's Lego set is that the world was alive. It had all of these living beings in it, and they had minds of their own. And so the world started to run amok. And God noticed and realized, oh, I got to do something about that. That's what happens in the flood. But God didn't just decide to send the flood. And in the priestly story, he doesn't want to destroy the world and give up on his experiment. He wants to fix it. And so that's what he does. At the end of the flood, he gives rules about eating meat because that was the problem. It was the problem of violence. That's what P says. And so he deals with this problem of shedding blood. But he's already decided before he sends the flood in P that he's going to move into the world. And that's why he then selects Abraham. That's why he promises Abraham land and progeny, because he's going to need a people group to serve him when he lives in the world, and he's going to need a place to put his sanctuary when he moves into it. So then the rest of the story is about the realization of those goals. He grows a people group in Israel He gives them all kinds of commands for how they need to behave. He gives them a whole set of instructions for how to build a sanctuary for him to live in in their midst. And he then moves into it and the people then go through the wilderness period from Egypt into the land of Canaan. So, so Jeff, let me, I just want to make sure that we're yeah. all on board here. One reason why this particular storyteller is called the priestly <laughs> source or the priestly storyteller is in part because of this emphasis on the sanctuary, whether yeah. the tabernacle or eventually the temple, right? That's right. Because, I mean, it's hard for people just, you know, normal people reading the Pentateuch to pick this stuff up, and yet... It's like a dominant view that I learned, too, that makes a tremendous amount of sense of aspects of the text. But it might be hard for people to pick up just reading it on their own. But And you mentioned something in Genesis 1 yeah. that's different than Genesis 2. And, and I love the Lego analogy, because yeah. you know, I, I tell my students, it's sort of like Genesis 1 is like God's a cosmic button pusher, just making everything so. And then yeah. in Genesis 2, he's taking a walk in the garden and asking questions like he doesn't know what's going on. That's right. Right. So, it's a different portrayal of God. But are there other like markers that people can look for when they're reading along, say, in Genesis or Exodus? And they say, oh, I remember from that podcast, this might be something that sounds like it came from this particular storyteller that scholars call P or the priestly source. Yeah. So, an example of these connections that I'm suggesting between the creation accounts and the flood accounts is a good example of this. So, in the case of the Yahwistic flood, God chooses to destroy humanity because of their wickedness, and he also destroys all of the animals along with them. He ends up having to save Noah and then decides to save animals along with him to repopulate the world because Noah is righteous, and the God of the Yahwistic source is bound by justice. But the fact that he was going to wipe out the humans in J makes it possible for him to wipe out the animals too, because in Genesis 2, the animals are made for the purpose of the humans. When God creates Adam and he's alone and he wants a companion, God makes the animals and brings them to Adam to see if there's a suitable companion, and there's not. Just before we go too far, Jeff, the the Yahwistic source... And you called it J, they're the same thing. 
They're the same thing. Right. And because of how God tends to be referred to by the divine name ah, Yahweh. So, yeah, the origin of this name is one of the problems of the theory. If people know anything about the documentary hypothesis, they oftentimes know that the J source, the Yahwistic source, is named the Yahwistic source because it prefers the name Yahweh for the Israelite God in the book of Genesis. The Eloistic source is called the Eloistic source because in Genesis, it prefers the title Elohim, which just means God, for the Israelite God. This breaks down in Exodus 3, where the Eloistic source introduces the divine name Yahweh into the text. But they think, and this has sometimes been a problem not just for laypersons who learn about this, but also, frankly, for scholars, that you can divide the sources based on divine names. And this is not right. But that is where the names of these sources came from, the Yahwistic source, the Eloistic source. These are based on the divine names that are used in Genesis. And, and the Yahwistic source, even though it's, it's Y for us, it, you say J because of German. Because of German, exactly. Because <laughs> right? you spell Yahweh with a J in Germany, and that's where this theory really caught on. Exactly. So this is really where it originated okay. and, right. and grew. Yeah. Well, can I back us up just a little bit? Because I think making sure, you know, for, for those of us who maybe have swam in the waters of the documentary hypothesis, we're, yeah. we're up to speed on what we've said so far. But I just want to maybe reframe it, Jeff, and you can tell me if I'm saying this correctly. But basically, we have our five first books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when we think of books, we think there's an author to that book. But what the documentary hypothesis is saying is that there it doesn't split up so evenly. There's not one person who wrote Genesis, one person who wrote Exodus, but there's these sources behind it. And little pieces of each of those books could be attributed to one of these sources. And that's what we would call it, the J source, the E, D, or P source, so these four that we're now Yeah, that's about. right. These, these sources are, are compositions that are authored. So, would that, they be, so for instance, if I were to go back in time at some point, there would actually be a scroll that the priestly writer or writers would have written, and it would have been its own coherent narrative. And at some point, there was a Eloistic composition or book, and somebody took those apart and tried to make one. That's right out of that? Yeah, and the way that they did this, and I think it was probably one person who did this, in some versions of the documentary hypothesis, you'll hear about multiple compilers or multiple redactors. I think there's actually just one compiler. There's just one person who's responsible for putting these sources together. And the person who did this followed three principles. The first was maximal preservation tried to save everything he could. The second was minimal intervention. So, he didn't add anything if it was possible to just leave the source material the way it was. He wasn't introducing new material of his own. And he was trying to stick with a source as long as possible until he had to switch to a different one. And then the third principle was to arrange the material chronologically into a single plot line. So, it's really these three principles that are applied consistently across the entire Pentateuch in order to create this one work. And so, that's why I say it's five-fifths of one Torah. So, so Jeff, Genesis 1 and 2 would be an example of maybe maximal preservation, because you have these two traditions of creation, but he doesn't want to get rid of one. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think that's the case with 
everything that he had. Mm -hmm. He wanted to save it all. Genesis 1 and 2 is a great example, both of maximal preservation and minimal intervention. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, he didn't cut it up and try to put it together. He just left it, juxtaposed the two side by side. We're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take just one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. One, just go to iTunes, rate us, and give us a review, but only do it if you like us. If not, just remember this is the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Two, if you haven't already, please check us out on Patreon, patreon.com, front slash, the Bible for normal people. There you'll find ways to join the community, contribute to the discussion, and offer your support at various levels. Last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. Um, These folks not only email us feedback, but they jump on calls quarterly and have supported us financially. So thanks to Ryan Morrison, Michelle Chantos, Dave Carlton, Kevin Ming, Teresa Thompson, Philip Gibson, Lelia Fry, Stephen Goulstone, John Thomas, and Michelle Casey. We couldn't do what we do without you, so thank you. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Now back to the podcast. 
So what we, uh, we we look at these things, and you know, we started off by talking about these two creation stories. They contradict in in, in, a, in a in in a sense. You know, if we're thinking about one author writing this, this would be just a flat contradiction. But these are two traditions that an editor put together and to preserve, you know, these ancient traditions and apparently not very concerned about whether they fit, you know, quote, logically, at least by our standards. That's right. This compiler makes very few interventions in order to fix the logic. There are a few cases where that happens. One of these categories is that he doesn't have characters born or die more than once. That's good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) makes sense, right? So, he will, on occasion, when he's got, say, multiple accounts of a character's birth or death, he'll take care of that. But most of the contradictions he leaves there. And I would suggest that's a really good thing because it allows us to understand where these texts come from and to reconstruct what these works were. If he had been a more interventionist editor, we'd never be able to reconstruct it. Right. He left those those seams, as they call them, uh, where you can sort of tell, oh, goodness, we're switching here a little bit with a tone or with vocabulary, like what, what, what divine name is used or other things like that. And you can sort of see the differences. And then when you say, well, these things, they don't really fit together. Well, here's why they don't fit together very well by our standards, because we're looking for logical coherence. Whereas for them, preserving the ancient traditions was more important than achieving that kind of logical coherence. So, I would say a couple of things. The switch from one source to another is not perceptible usually on the basis of tone or vocabulary. It's really the internal plot contradictions. It's the conflicting historical claims that are being made from one source to another. It's also the fact that we get discontinuity in the running text. So, we get breaks in the continuity of the narrative, for example. The other thing I would say is it's important to to recognize that this style of compilation is not one that we see regularly in the Hebrew Bible or, for that matter, in other ancient Near Eastern texts. And so, I don't know that we can really talk about a they who wanted to do this preservation. This style of compilation, it has certain similarities with other ancient texts, But this particular style is not one that we see over and over again. And for that reason, some scholars have looked at this documentary theory and they say, ah, well, we don't have other examples. We don't have empirical models. So, that's probably not what's going on in that text. I would say instead, it looks like it's the way it works in this text. And this doesn't seem to be a method of scribal work that was replicated over and over again, or at least we don't have evidence for it. And within that, do you see, you know, we're talking today primarily about where the Pentateuch come from, but we had an episode not too long ago about the Deuteronomic writer and mm-hmm. how that happened. So, Deuteronomy is part of the Pentateuch, one of the mm-hmm. five, but the, the Deuteronomist clearly has influence through Kings and, you know, Samuel Kings. And do you see these sources going throughout the Hebrew Bible, or is it particularly uh, the first five books, a Pentateuchal phenomenon? So, These compositions, at least a couple of them, maybe three of them, maybe the priestly source, the Yahwistic source, and the Eloistic source, go at least into Joshua. Some have argued that they go even further than that. The reason that I say that they 
go into Joshua is because we have the promise of land and progeny to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob in Genesis. And that promise of land in particular is not fulfilled until Joshua, when the Israelites enter into the land of Canaan. The problem is that it looks like the transmission history of the scroll of Joshua was different than the transmission history of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there was a more interventionist transmission history in the case of Joshua, such that we can't separate the sources nearly as easily and neatly in the case of Joshua as we can in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Sorry, just real quick, can you just define transmission history? Yeah, so the way that the text was passed down over time and the way that it was recopied, the kinds of interventions that scribes made, we know based on the ancient manuscripts that we have both from the Dead Sea Scrolls which attest the oldest copies of the Hebrew Bible that exist, to ancient translations like the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, other ancient translations, that we had a diverse text that developed. So, all of these different manuscripts and translations, they don't agree with each other in lots of small details and some actually quite large details. And so, we know that the text was being passed down and instead of being reproduced exactly, there were all kinds of change, some intentional, some unintentional, that were introduced into the text. So, okay, what I'm hearing you saying too, Jeff, is that there are, there are places where you can really see sources. It seems like almost the only possible explanation for certain things. There are other places where it's harder to discern. And what I've heard a lot from, you know, evangelical friends and professors over the past is that the fact that you can't apply it everywhere and the fact that even scholars disagree where some sources begin and end calls into question the entire enterprise. Mm -hmm. I would imagine you disagree with that. Yeah, I think that's wrong. Why? (laughs) Uh, So, I would say that there are reasons why separating these sources is difficult. Some of those reasons has to do with the sources themselves, that they tell a lot of the same tradition or the same story, we might even say, but with some differing details, means that there's a lot of similarities between them which makes them sometimes hard to differentiate from each other. The way that the compiler put them together also makes it difficult, because the compiler creates, through this chronological arrangement, really a single plot line, a single story. And so, if one approaches the material with the assumption that one is reading a unified text, one can find certain features of unity within it, especially this chronological arrangement of the plot. Some of the factors that influence, I think, you know, the kind of skepticism that you describe have to do with basic elements of human cognition. I wrote an article about this a couple years ago. Scientists, people who work like on cognitive psychology, some linguists, they do research on the reading process. And some of the experiments that they run pose to test subjects narratives that look a lot like biblical narratives, narratives that have discrepancies within them. And then they try to see whether or not their test subjects recognize the discrepancies. So, an example of this in one experiment that's been done is to give 
test subjects a story that goes something like, Mary was meeting her friend Elizabeth for lunch at a restaurant. Mary was a vegetarian. Her favorite food was broccoli, but she would eat a salad or other vegetables. It just was really important to her not to eat meat. Mary got to the restaurant early and was sitting and reading a book and was there for about 20 minutes before Elizabeth arrived. When Elizabeth got there, the waiter gave them their menus and Mary ordered cheeseburger and fries and Elizabeth ordered a Caesar salad. So based on a story like that, the line about Mary ordering a cheeseburger and fries doesn't make any sense in relation to the description of her earlier in the story as a vegetarian. And what these researchers find is that in reading that story, they give the story to test subjects one line at a time on a computer screen, and they have to press the space bar to get the next line in the story. So they read the line, they press the space bar, they read the next line, they press the space bar. And what they find is that when they get to the discrepant line, the line about Mary ordering a cheeseburger and fries, they're timing how much time it takes for the reader to read each line. And each line is about 10 or 11 words long. And so there's a real consistency in the amount of time it takes them to read. When they get to the discrepant line, they pause. So they recognize it. So it is the case that readers recognize discrepancies. And so I would suggest that this is the case for readers of the Bible, too, It was the case for me before I was exposed to any of these theories. I noticed these discrepancies, like we talked about when we started with Genesis 1 and 2, but I didn't know what to do with them. And it's the case, and this is part of the the theory that's related to this modern research, it's the case that we deal with all kinds of incomplete information all the time. We also deal with inconsistencies and discrepancies all the time, and we're able to handle them. So it's not surprising that we can encounter discrepancies within a text and still make sense of it. We can do creative partial matching and come up with something that makes sense. But that has has to do with us as readers, not necessarily with the text. And so some scholars will distinguish between coherence, which is a creation of a reader, that sense of wholeness and logic, over against cohesion, which are the internal connections within a text, the way that one sentence relates to the next, the internal cross-referencing, anaphora, that sort of thing within a text. So our ability to, let's say, read a text that has some tensions in it and sort of find coherence, that may not solve anything really in terms of, let's say, the history of it. No, I'd say we're hardwired to do that. You know, there's a real advantage. I mean, imagine... Like, you probably know somebody, I I have a friend who's like this, where every time there's incomplete information in the conversation, he interrupts and says, hey, but but what you mean is, right? Yeah, Jared does that all the time, actually. It's sort of annoying. I was going to say that sounds Yeah, it's really irritating, right? Uh, You want to say, just wait. Just wait a minute. You're going to get it. Yes. Right? Uh, So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which we deal with incomplete information. But coherence is a really low bar. We can create coherence out of almost anything. It's the reason I can't find the typos in my writing. So yeah, I I would say the fact that we are creative interpreters doesn't really solve the problem. I was just going to say, within my background, it would be saying that just because you can find coherence in the text doesn't mean that there's cohesion there. Exactly. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, there's another modern experiment that, that really demonstrates this well. It's, it's called the Moses illusion. And it's another one of these psychological experiments that's been replicated over and over again. It's really robust. And it's called the Moses illusion because researchers pose questions to test subjects that go like this. How many of each animal did Moses bring on the ark? And they warn the test subjects ahead of time. This might not make sense. If it doesn't make sense, just say so. But people consistently answer the question, how many of each animal did Moses bring on the ark, with the answer two. And they don't hear the fact that the test has posed a question to them that doesn't make any sense. That it's not Moses who brought the animals on the ark, it was Noah. And they can do this with all kinds of different names. They can do Abraham, they can do Jesus, they can do David. All these biblical names, for example, work really well. In fact, it's not until they get to names like, how many of each animal did Hitler bring on the ark? Or how many of each animal did Nixon bring on the ark? That people start saying, hey, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. So those kinds of experiments suggest to me that people are really good at making these partial matches. Right. And it takes a good eye to sort of see when that's not actually working very well. You said something before that really put a couple pieces together for me, and that is how important it is to see these, maybe let's call them plot tensions, where things just don't make sense. And you just mentioned how many animals went onto the ark. And that's another one of these tensions that's pretty hard to avoid because one of the sources has, you know, two of each, and then another source adds a bunch more animals. Right. Just explain that because I think that's one of these places where people can go and just say, my goodness gracious, what the heck's going on here? Yeah. Now, this is a great example. The J source has two of each of the impure animals, but seven pairs of the pure animals or the clean animals. So these are animals that are sacrificable. The P source just has two of every kind of animal. Doesn't make any distinction between pure and impure. The reason for this is that at the end of the J flood account, Noah offers sacrifices. And so if there are only two of each of the sacrificial species, then he would wipe out those species entirely. So he needs extra animals for sacrifice. And Jay builds that into the story itself. Now, now the peace source, the priestly source, you'd think this is the one that's going to be all fixated on sacrifice, but that's exactly the source that doesn't have it. Exactly. Because, complete that sentence. Uh, Because in the priestly source, there is no sacrifice prior to Sinai. Right. So, in the priestly source, in the story about God wanting to move to earth sacrifices are divine food. And so, when God moves to earth in P, he needs to eat something because he's understood to have a physical body and he lives in the sanctuary. And he's very big and so he's very hungry. And so, he needs more to eat than regular humans eat. And he only likes to eat certain things. And so, he tells the Israelites exactly what he wants them to give him. And so, that's what they have to feed him. Before he moves to earth, uh, it seems that he eats the manna, which is the bread of heaven, which is where he lives. Mm. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that before. That's a, that's a, <laughs> and he probably got sick of that too. I'm guessing so. Yeah, God in, in P is, is a carnivore. He likes to eat. Yeah, meat. right. Yeah, uh, okay, listen, I, boy, 
there are 10,000 examples we could look at and we we don't have a t- we don't have time for a ton more but i know that we've talked briefly about one example that you like to use with your students to sort of show them some of these plot tensions Sure. And it's it's uh, the first plague, right? Yeah. Uh, well, depending on what counts as a plague. Good. I know. That's a good point. It's the blood plague. The way normally people say the first plague. So, <laughs> sure. Uh, but also, just keeping in mind, you know, I always tell my uh, our listeners this, that when we're talking about things that are of a real biblical textual nature, don't read while you're driving. Just wait till you get home, and that's fine. So, you know, keeping that in mind, not everyone will have a text in front of them, but that's, I mean, that's a really interesting story that, that, you know, the Nile and the blood and all that kind of stuff. Sure. So, fill us in a little bit on what's going on there and, and some obvious tensions in that story that suggest there's more than one source here and they're sort of woven together. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, this is one of these examples where we have two stories uh, that have been woven together and it's uh, like all of the other cases of stories that are interwoven, the compiler of the Pentateuch decides to interweave stories when he has two accounts that he judges to be the same event. And so, here he's got two accounts of the plague of blood in Egypt, and so he weaves them together in order to create a single event out of those two accounts. But within it, he has preserved each of the individual original stories, one from the J source, one from the P source, completely. So, differences between them include who is commanded to use the staff in the story. Is it Moses and his staff or is it Aaron and his staff? There's also a discrepancy over which water the staff is to be used on and then what the person with the staff should do to the water. Is it the Nile, the water of the the Nile River, Or is it a whole collection of waters, the rivers, the Niles, the pools, the reservoirs? And then, is he supposed to take the staff and strike the water? Or is he supposed to hold the staff in his hand and then stretch out his hand over the water? These are different. In the span of these 12 verses, we get this discrepancy. There's also a difference in the effect of turning the water to blood. So, In the J story, we get the fish dying, the Nile stinking, and the inability to drink from it. But curiously, in verse 22 of Exodus 7, we have, after the water being turned to blood, we have the magicians doing the same thing. And so, if according to verse 21, it's all of the water in Egypt that has been turned into blood, what water is left for the magicians to turn to blood themselves? So, there seems to be no notable effect of the water turning to blood in verse 22 because the magicians are able to replicate the miracle. We also have different descriptions of Pharaoh's heart or his mind. Is it heavy or is it strong? We have some other internal discrepancies as well. And all of these lead to a conclusion that we don't have one story here, but we have actually two accounts of the plague of blood. And they disagree with each other in all of these different ways. But they've been interwoven and arranged chronologically. So, the compiler has said what needs to come first, what comes next, what comes after that, and order the material in that way. Now, one interesting effect of this is that by putting these together, we get a curious issue in the case of 
the Egyptians digging around the, the Nile to get water. The, the text says that the Egyptians had to dig around the Nile for water because they couldn't drink the water of the Nile because it was bloody. In the compiled text, because verse 21 says that all of the water in Egypt turned to blood, we are forced to conclude that the water that the Egyptians dug up around the Nile, that was bloody too. So it becomes a kind of comedic moment, like those stupid Egyptians. Uh, look what happened. As we come to the closer to the end of our time here, what would be some strategies? If you just had people who are just kind of understanding this idea of the sources, are there, what's the practical import or what are ways that people might be more mindful as they're reading to connect some of these dots? And it may, I, I mean, for me, it enriched how I read the stories and the Bible. But so what do you have any, you know, your, for your students, how do you help them have some strategies, some reading strategies or, or things to be on the lookout for? So I would say a couple of things. One is that it's not really realistic for somebody who's reading the text in translation to be able to see all of these details. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is the assumption of the translators who translated the text that most anybody is reading, that translation reflects an assumption of the coherence of the text. So, the translators will oftentimes translate out of the text several of these problems that exist. Not all of them, but several of them. And so, it's really hard to feel the choppiness of the text when you read it in translation. So, the first thing to say is that if you're reading the text in translation, you're not going to be able to reconstruct these sources entirely on your own. And so, you shouldn't feel frustrated about that. So, learn, learn Hebrew is what you're saying for all of our listeners. So, learn Hebrew. It's only, you know, one small book that you have to learn. You know, it's not that much. It's not, uh, <laughs> could be worse. It could be worse. Yeah. yeah. So, so, one, you know, you don't have to sort of feel responsible to be able to do all these source divisions yourself. The second thing to say, though, is that when you encounter problems in the text, the problems are in the text. They're not you. So, oftentimes a reader will encounter a problem and they'll say, oh, well, you know, maybe I don't know enough. You know, maybe I'm not pious enough. Maybe it's a mystery and we can't know. I think actually all these things are probably wrong. When it comes to problems in the Pentateuch, the problems are almost always in the text, not in the reader. And so, you have to kind of trust yourself. So, when you encounter a problem and you say, hey, that doesn't make sense, you have to trust yourself to know, yeah, the text doesn't make sense. It's really a problem. And so, whether it's discrepancies between different laws that treat the same subject matter in the different parts of the Pentateuch, but they disagree on the details, whether it's the names of certain characters which change. So, Moses' father-in-law is either named Jethro or Reuel or Hobab. He gets different names in different sources. And you might say, well, why has he got all these different names? You'll sometimes hear people try to explain away those differences and say, oh, well, it's, it's like modern people. They have nicknames. But it turns out that these differences are attended by a whole number of other ones. And so, when these, these sources are divided, though, those problems don't exist. And by the way, it's important to know that this isn't just the way that ancient writers wrote. We've got all kinds of ancient Near Eastern texts, including biblical texts, that are internally cohesive, just like these Pentateuchal sources, and not at all like the compiled Pentateuch. Hmm. 
Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on and just teaching us so much about where the Pentateuch came from. As we close our time, is there anywhere that people can find you online or do you have some projects that are wrapping up or, or some books you want to point us to? I would say a couple of things. If you want to read the stuff that I've written, you can go to my academia.edu page. Academia.edu is a place where I post things that I write. So I posted a whole bunch of articles there. I recognize that a lot of them are pretty technical, but not all of them. If you want to read something that's geared more towards non-academic readers, I wrote the introduction and annotations for Leviticus in the New Oxford Annotated Bible. And so you can read that. But if you're interested in getting a sort of accessible further introduction to the documentary hypothesis and the composition of the Pentateuch, I'd actually recommend a friend of mine's book. A guy named Joel Baden wrote a book called The Composition of the Pentateuch. And it goes through example after example of exactly the kind of things we're talking about. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much for for coming on and, and sharing with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, Jeff. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. What a fascinating conversation with Jeff. Yeah, and an important one, too. And, you know, if you want to do more reading on this topic, you know, you mentioned the book by Joel Baden, who's uh, just a wonderful scholar. You might have to take out a home equity loan to buy the book, though. So, anyway. Which may, it may be well worth it, but for those of us who, who maybe don't want to invest that, you have an alternative for us, Pete? I, I sure do. Richard Elliott Friedman wrote a book, oh, I don't know, 25 years ago or so, called Who? wrote the Bible. And it's a really good, well-paced introduction to non-specialists about why biblical scholars say there are these sources in the Pentateuch. And, you know, he also has this, I mean, I'm looking right now on Amazon, you can get it used on paperback for $389. There's another book that he wrote, The Bible with Sources Revealed, where he has the Pentateuch and he sort of color codes it. And, you know, as long as you remember, that's just one person's opinion, but he's not just representing sort of an idiosyncrasy. This is what a lot of scholars think. There's debate about some of this stuff, but it's a good introduction. That's all. You know, and I think if you have any interest in that, it's a good thing to pick up both those books and uh, see what you come up with. And I would say, you know, as you're reading those, also just be on the lookout that at some point, either later this season or maybe in season three, we'll be uh, diving into this topic a little bit more because I think there's a lot to explore here. Yeah, we're not done with this. There's This is like the issue in modern biblical scholarship for a lot of people. So we're going to keep coming back to this and taking snippets here and there and, and see what we come up with. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next time.